The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors. We're really glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. And, and like Jeremy said, I want to welcome you. Those of you that are here in the sanctuary, I welcome those men and women out in the overflow and a lot of folks tuning in each week online. I know there's a couple of you that have messaged me this morning that you're not feeling well and you're at home. I want to welcome you. Uh, in as well. You're joining us uh, um, about halfway, a little more than halfway through a teaching series we started last fall in the, the book of uh, Mark. And as we journey through the book of Mark, we have been sort of asking over the last, oh, seven and a half chapters, who is Jesus? And then as we get into our passage over the last couple of weeks and then here through the end of chapter 10, the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? And then we're going to get into the triumphal entry and we're going to start focusing on the last half of Mark's gospel in a few weeks. But this week, as we gather into this text, we're doing so after uh, we just spent some time last week in this moment where Jesus and his, uh, Peter, James, and John were on Transfiguration Mount. They came down to the valley uh, where, where the other nine disciples were there doing ministry, and they, they, they couldn't cast this demon out of a boy, and it was creating angst. And this father, in the, in the kind of the apex of our passage last week, this father runs up to Jesus, and uh, he says... To, this father, to, to Jesus, help, help us, help me, help my son. We're desperate. And Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Very well-known text. And then in verse 24 of chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, immediately the father of the child cried out and he said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And we sort of settled into that text last week. And as we settled into that passage, we, 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 we finished by saying our hope is not in the mountains in our midst being moved. Our hope is in the one who moves mountains. Put another way, we said the power of our faith is not in our desire to see the mountain move, but the power of our faith is in the one who moves mountains. And so that's what we come off of. And then this week, we, we come into our text this week, and Jesus, again, uh, for the second time, he predicts his, his pending death and resurrection. And you see the disciples are scrambling to, to understand the values of the kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of the world that they live in. These are men who come from a, a context, a culture. They have a religious context. They have a political, social, nationalistic context. And as they're, as they're sitting with Jesus, there's these competing values. And in our passage, today we're going to see the values of the kingdom of God come into conflict with the values of the kingdoms of this world and we're going to see how Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on how we as Christians are to live in, in under the authority of his kingdom and of his kingship that is not of this world. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 and we'll begin in verse 30. But first would you join me in prayer? Oh God, we're thankful. We're thankful that we have your word that we can open up this morning. God, we have this record of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. God, would you give us ears to hear? God, we all come from a certain context. God, we, we come from a certain culture. And whether we realize it or not today, when we walk into this sanctuary, we have presuppositions and we have certain cultural lenses that we are wearing as we gaze upon your word. God, by your spirit, would you give us the ability to the very best of, of, of our ability, God, to see your word for what it is. And God, where your values, where the values of the kingdom of God press up against ours, God, would you bring confession and repentance? Would you reorient and redirect our hearts to live as subjects 
under the rule of King Jesus. God, we love you. Would you meet us in this place? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember growing up in Montana in the mid-90s. I was in college, I think. It was about 95, I think, where uh, they began to reintroduce wolves into, um, into Yellowstone National Park. Do you guys remember that? And it was like a big deal. They were following it on the news every evening. And I remember they got to this point where they had these huge chain-link cages that were set out in the park. And these wolves, these gray wolves that they had, uh, that they had um, sort of prepared for reintroduction and the repopulation of the wolf populations in, in Yellowstone, they were in these cages. And, and the point came where the wolves were ready, and these big gates were open, these big doors were open, and these wolves were free to kind of go back into the park and sort of repopulate Yellowstone with wolf populations and kind of reestablish a pack. And now there's thriving packs in the park. But I remember when the, when the gates first opened, kind of this unique news story was that the wolves wouldn't leave the cages. Do you remember this? They, they remained, the gates were open, they were free to go, but these wolves remained. They stayed in their in, enclosures. They couldn't comprehend this new reality that they had this multi-million acre park to roam Rather, they, they, they chose to remain caged and sort of live in that old reality. I think about us today as we gather in this place. Uh, we are men and women in this church who all emerge from different cultural contexts, different cultural cages. We live in this world, and this world in which we live has particular cultural values that sort of guide the world around us. And I'm reminded of, of what Paul writes in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I'm reminded as I was interacting with one of our elders this week that, that, the, that, that Satan is described in the Bible as the king of this world. And you get this image of these competing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And, and as we get into our text today, we see how as Jesus enters the world, he brings an entirely different kingdom ethic and, and it's beginning to butt heads with these people, uh, these men, these disciples who come from a particular cultural context, a cultural cage, if you will. And in Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is sort of talking about what his kingdom is all about, he says, The greatest among you in my kingdom shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so as I look at our text today, we're going to see in multiple different ways that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Jeremy Neff put it this way in in our sermon development this week. He said, In the kingdom of God, the upward call of Christ is lower still. And so if you look with me, beginning in verse 30 of, of Mark chapter 9, we see as Jesus and his disciples are now making their way to Jerusalem. The call of the cross is leading Jesus to Jerusalem. They were in the north of Israel at Mount Hermon, and now they're journeying toward the cross. They're journeying towards Jerusalem. And in our passage today, we're going to go through verse 41. There's going to be three interactions that we're going to see between Jesus and his disciples. The first interaction we're going to see is Jesus is going to yet again for the second time foretell of his pending death and resurrection. And then the the disciples in the second interaction are going to be grappling with one another about who is the greatest and Jesus is going to redirect. And the third interaction, they begin talking about this sort of competing uh, uh, guy who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus and they struggle with that and then Jesus also redirects. And in all three instances, we're going to see how Jesus is reminding his disciples and thus reminding us that in the kingdom of God... The way up is down. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. 
And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Let's pause there for a sec. This is the last time that Jesus is going to be in Galilee. The majority of his ministry early on in Mark's gospel is in the region of Galilee. And this is the last time until after his resurrection that Jesus is in Galilee. And, and he's teaching his disciples. I was sharing with you last week that uh, beginning of middle of chapter 8 and verse, chapters 9 and 10 is, is the disciples are being presented with this question, who do you say that Jesus is? We see Jesus offering these moments of instruction over the next two chapters designed to help his uh, uh, disciples understand the values of his kingdom. He's preparing them for his departure. And in these three different interactions, we're going to see Jesus teaching them as they journey south And then he begins in verse 31 by, for the second time, telling them that he's going to die. And he's going to come back to life. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, and he was saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Notice, if you're you're the kind of person that likes to underline or circle, notice the word delivered there. It's interesting, some other older translations use the word betrayed. Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of men or into the hands of evil men. But, but the word here, delivered, as I was doing a little word work on this this week, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more appropriate word here. This phrase, be delivered, it's intentional. The view here is not the eventual betrayal that Jesus will experience at the hands of Judas and even when his other disciples betray him and, and Peter denies him three times, certainly Jesus is the object of betrayal. But the picture here is not one of betrayal, it's one of deliverance. And as I was wrestling with this, I read some other authors on this and, and the, the interesting thing is Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of evil men by the Father. By the Father. It's not an act of divine betrayal. This is the divine will of the triune Godhead. This is the plan of God that Jesus will be handed over to evil men. And the deliverance of Jesus in the hands of these men, it's absolutely central. It's key to the mission of Jesus because Jesus is going as a willing sacrifice. He willingly lays down his life later on in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel as Jesus continues to instruct his disciples. He says to them, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life, and the Father is going to deliver him over to evil men. Jesus came into the kingdom of darkness. He came into the kingdom of Satan to bear the sin and shame that is due sinners. And yet as a sinless sacrifice, as our substitute, Jesus went and died in our place. He ushered in his kingdom. It was in his resurrection that we might be justified by the grace of God, declared righteous, adapted and adopted into the family of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, heirs of the kingdom of God. And in order for all of this to happen, in order for our redemption, in order for the gospel to happen, Jesus had to be delivered over to the hands of of these men. And in a couple of weeks, on April 15th, we're going to gather in this place on a Friday night, and there's going to be a huge cross hanging right here. We're going to look at the cross of Christ, and we're going to remind ourselves the journey of Jesus to the cross and the willing way in which our Savior laid down his life for us. And so the message of Jesus here is sort of this umbrella that kind of highlights, I don't know what the right word is, ethic, but it highlights this core principle of the kingdom. And it's this idea of humble sacrifice. If you want to take notes, I encourage you to write that down. Jesus, the first thing he's saying, he's calling, he's, he's highlighting his humble sacrifice. Those two words don't do justice. He, he's the suffering Savior. He's the servant of servants. He is this humble sacrifice. And he's preparing his disciples for that reality. It's the second time he's done so. 
If you remember back in chapter 8 when he predicted his, or told of his, his pending death, there was some angst between the, especially the apostle Peter, and there was a harsh interaction between Jesus and Peter. And so here it says that in verse 32 that they didn't understand the saying, Jesus, they, they couldn't comprehend the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they were afraid to ask him. And I'm like, why, why were they afraid? Because I was remembering back to the last time that Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection, and Peter's like, no, far be it that this would ever happen to you, Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? He turns to his disciples and he rebukes Peter and he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. And so I can imagine as they hear Jesus foretell of his death and resurrection, they're like, I'm not going to be the next Peter. I'm not going to speak up and be rebuked and be called Satan by Jesus. We're just going to zip our lips. Plus, we don't even understand what all this means. They were in their cultural cage. They're like, these, the, the gate, Jesus is opening the gates and saying, my kingdom is a different kingdom. They're still living in their cultural cage, their religious cage, their Jewish cage. They couldn't fathom a suffering Messiah. They just couldn't understand it. So they just, so their, their response is, huh? That's my second. So if you want to know what this is, they're like, huh? Like what? We don't, we don't even get it. Like, it's the only joke I got today, by the way, so laugh it up. That's the only, they, they don't get it. And Jesus is beginning to reveal to them that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. On what kingdom is the king going to the cross? In what kingdom is the king serving his subjects? This is the upside down kingdom. I always imagine the apostle Peter, years later, after the filling of the Holy Spirit, after the explosion of the Christian church across the known world, I imagine him sitting down with Mark as an eyewitness of all of this, I imagine him sitting down with Mark and just sort of telling him his eyewitness experiences. And I wonder how many, we talk about this in sermon development each week. I wonder how many times as, as Peter is sitting with the author of our, our gospel, I wonder how many times he just was like, oh, such an idiot. How did I, how do we not understand this? But they just didn't. It's not going to be after, until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That these these men and women are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not until then that their understanding of the mission of the Messiah makes sense. Their minds, their unregenerate hearts at this point can't comprehend the full mission of the Messiah. But one day, they will be filled with the Spirit. And they will follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And they themselves will, will, will learn what it means to be a humble sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I was reading in the Gospel Transformation Study Bible this week. And I love the note that it has on humility. Listen to this note. The power of humility lies in the fact that it does not boast in or rely on its own strength, but rests instead in him who is powerful and infinitely resourceful. Humility is not self-seeking, rather it seeks to pursue God's purposes in God's way. Though it feels like weakness, therefore humility is in fact deeply powerful. Servant leadership is one expression of humility. It is the path Jesus himself took in suffering and dying for us. And so in this first interaction between Jesus and his disciples on their way from Mount Hermon to Jerusalem, we see Jesus is talking about his humble sacrifice. The disciples are clueless. Pick up in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who 
was the greatest. So funny. There's tension among the disciples. Put yourself in their shoes, especially in context of the last few uh, sections of Scripture. So just a few days earlier, Jesus had shoulder tapped Peter and the sons of thunder, James and John. And he said, hey, you three, you're going to go with me. We're going to go up this mountain. Nine of you, you stay back. And so for six days, they're up on the mountain. These disciples see incredible things. They see the transfiguration of Jesus. They hear the voice of the Father. They see Elijah and Moses. It's an incredible encounter. And then on the way down the mountain, do you remember what Jesus tells them? Don't tell anyone about this. And so they come down with this divine secret. They re-enter into the, the valley. These nine disciples have been left behind, sort of miffed. Like, why did those three guys get to go? Why did we have to stay? And not only that, these nine that are left are left to do the dirty work. They're, they're healing, they're preaching, they're trying to cast out demons. They get beat up, in fact, by this demon and this boy. They can't cast it out. They're feeling impotent, they're feeling weak, they're feeling vulnerable. And these other three got to go be with Jesus. And on top of that, the other three are smug. They have a divine secret. They're not talking about what they saw on top of the mountain. Can you imagine the tension among the twelve? And now they're walking on this road, and Jesus just again talked about his death and resurrection. And as they're walking, maybe they're worried about what's going to happen when Jesus dies, and they're trying to figure out who's going to be the leader if that happens. We don't know, but all we know is that they're now arguing over who is the greatest. I can imagine Peter, James, and John are thinking, well, clearly we're in the top three. He shows us to go to the top of the mountain, and Peter, being a loudmouth know-it-all, probably himself was thinking, clearly I'm the leader, for I speak all the time. The other nine are thinking, no, you guys just got a little divine vacation. Jesus trusted us with the real work. He put the hefty loads on our shoulders where you guys went on a little vacation up the mountain. We're really the greatest. And so they're arguing over who is the greatest. And I think it's easy for us to kind of put on our cultural lens and automatically just shame the disciples without real deep thought about what the cultural context was for these men as they're walking on this road. I did a little research this week. Contemporary Jewish culture was constantly immersed in questions of procedure and rank, I read this week. So this idea of who is the greatest and where do we rank among one another wasn't like this, it wasn't an obvious ego flex. Let's put it that way. Here's what one scholar writes. He says, at all points in worship, in administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose among the Jews this, this, this dialogue about who was greater. And esteeming the honor due to each was a task which had constantly be, to be fulfilled, as was felt to be very important. So, so this idea of who was greatest was, and I even wrote this in my notes as we were talking about it on Tuesday. I, I wrote, the jockeying for noble position was seen as a dignified practice. If you and I were to go in the hallway and start arguing about who was greater among us in the church, we would automatically kind of have this check in our spirit, like, if that's gross, like, I don't want to be... Like, I don't want, I'm not going to be like that. But in, in this Jewish culture, this was a very common dialogue about who belonged where in the pecking order. So they're having this discussion about greatness or supremacy or precedence. It was an accepted cultural preoccupation. And yet, and yet in the middle of this, Jesus leans in and he asks them, what they're talking about, and I think their silence is conspicuous. I think even though it may have been something that was sort of culturally accepted, they're, they're within, you know, hours, days, minutes of Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to be a humble sacrifice. And so with that model of humility that's less concerned about worldly greatness, right, they're having this discussion of greatness, and when Jesus speaks into their lives, they're like, Ugh. 
yeah, this is ugly. And they don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed about what they've been dialoguing about. And I think about us today. I think, I mean, maybe it's an American thing. Maybe it's a guy thing. Maybe it's a Western culture thing. I don't know. There is a preoccupation for us about who's the greatest. And I'm going to settle it right now. Jordan, not LeBron. No. Yes, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. You know, there's some, uh, it, it, but if, if Giannis keeps playing the way he is, he's going to be number one after a while but, because I'm a Milwaukee fan. Um, but, yeah, we are. I mean, think about it. every sports, whether you're a, a football, it, clearly it's Brady, but there's all these dialogues about who's the greatest in sport, who's the greatest in politics, it's Reagan, uh, who's the greatest in business, it's Elon Musk, who's the greatest in society. Like, but see how we, we are obsessed with greatness. This is a discussion we have all the time. Who's the goat? Who's the goat? Who's the goat? Guess what? Jesus is the goat. Right? He's the only one. Jesus, he alone is preeminent. And so in response to all this, Jesus foretelling of his humbling sacrifice, here's the disciples. Uh, write this down if you're a note taker of the disciples. They are seeking, I put it in air quotes, greatness. Because they have a cultural construct of what greatness is. They are seeking greatness. And what is Jesus' response to them as they sit in their silent shame to his question? Uh, verse 35, the beginning part, it says Jesus sat down. And he called the twelve. Notice how he, he responds. He sits down. He's calling his pupils, his students, to himself. This, was, this is what a rabbi did. He's assuming the, the position and the posture of formal teaching. He's like, okay, you have an idea in your mind of what greatness is, and it's wrong. My kingdom's values are different than the cage of this culture. My kingdoms are not of this world. Let's have a seat, and let me instruct you on what greatness really is. And he begins to teach. And notice that he does not, and by the way, this struck me. I, I always just read this because of my nature as Jesus was mad and he was angry and he rebuked them and they were filled with shame because that's my background. But he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't shame them. As a patient teacher, he sits down and he begins to redirect, reorient, and instruct them in the right way of thinking. Man, that was encouraging for me to read. Here's what he says. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Um, we're used to hearing that because we've, if you've been in the church, it's, it's something we're used to hearing. That is, even today, lay that value over the culture of our, our world today. What a counter-cultural value. In this statement, Jesus is turning the world then upside down. He turns our world upside down because every one of us is born with a deep sense or a deep desire for significance. We all want our lives to matter. We want to be first. All of us have had moments in our life, whether it's in business or sports or politics or wherever, where we've laid and we've imagined glory and success and reaching pinnacles. We've all been there. We've all grasped for power, grasped for position. We all want to be significant and special. We want the trophy. We want to be number one. All of us do. Now, maybe we can grow to a point where we learn to lay those things down with maturity, but in our nature, that's just in us. We struggle to fully know what it means that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. We want to go up. I was looking through a book I read several years ago that kind of dealt with this dynamic, and I noticed something I wrote in the margins. I wrote in the margins, grasping for power destroys relationships. Think about this in marriage or in parenting or in business or in society. If our primary concern is to be great, to be number one, to be in power, um, we will destroy those we love the most because we'll see them as means to our end. 
In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And, and I know I've shared with y'all in the past, like honestly, if you were to sort of like dissect my heart personally, this has been one of the hardest things in the world for me as a disciple. I'm sure it's family of origin. I'm sure there's lots of psychological reasons why this is hard for me. I've shared this with the staff often. Um, growing up, for whatever reason, I could blame my parents. I could blame myself. Being the best was, like, that was the primary ethic. Like, that's what I wanted to be the best. Um, not because I wanted to be the best for some, I don't think it was an altruistic motive. I just think I wanted to be made much of. Sports became that avenue for me early on. And so that began to shape my mind and my life. And so I pursued, or I pursued sports until that was no longer an option. I was too slow <laughs> and not strong enough to play football after college. Uh, and so then I just sort of transferred that deep desire for significance onto my vocation. And initially it was teaching and coaching. And then it became ministry. And then I, th- I saw ministry as a great way for me to find my own personal significance. How gross. How gross. You know, one of the coolest things for me lately has been to watch my daughter compete. Uh, I know if any of you follows me on social media, you're like, enough with the posts about your daughter. But my daughter's been competing. You know, was, uh, she, didn't think, she, she, was, she was doing college sports, and then that was taken away from her, the ability to compete in college sports. And so we just thought that that, uh, that season had passed. And honestly, if I can I tell you as a father, watching my children compete, I wanted them to be the best. Knowing everything I know about the, about, about the gospel, about their lives being an act of worship, live to God for his glory— that same desire in watching my kids, I wanted them to be the best, and I wanted them to be successful, and I wanted them to go on and have an impact and make a name for themselves, and all that gross thing sorted well up. And then when the Lord just graciously for a season took athletics away from my daughter Abigail's life, it was torturous for me. <laughs> uh, how selfish. You know, and then by God, God in his grace brought us to Oregon and, and, and opened up a door for Abigail to compete again. And even just, just this last week, I got to go to Santa Barbara and I got to watch her, you know, compete in a college track meet with her son. I got my grandson got to watch his mama compete for the joy of the game. Not because she has to be best. It's just a blessing. And that's how we've talked about it in our family. It's all just icing on the cake. There was a young lady that was competing with my daughter. She had uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 written on her leg. And I was so encouraged by that. What a great reminder. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, we do it all for the glory of God. And so to the message, the, so to this, this desire for greatness that's creeping up in the hearts of these, these men, Jesus says, you want to be great? Okay. Selfless service. That's what he tells them. Selfless service. He says to them, you want to be first, here's how you be first. Uh, you become a servant of all. And he introduces the paradox of the kingdom that we see all throughout the Gospels. The way to strength is weakness. The way to life is death. You want to save your life, you have to lose it. You want to be great, you have to suffer. You want to be first, you have to be last. This is the upside-down kingdom. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. We're seeing it in our text. The way to greatness is the way of service, Jesus says. If you want to be great, you have to be the greatest servant of all. And we struggle to see service as a way to greatness. I was even thinking this week about this interesting um, tension that exists between blue-collar and white-collar, between a, a liberal arts degree and a tech school degree. Somehow, in our mind as a society, we have devalued the role of the trades and the service industry as if it's less than. 
I mean, some of the smartest, most competent, most able human beings I've ever met are people that, that work in the service industry or in the trades, brilliant people. And somehow, I think it's a, a ploy for liberal arts universities to, to get kids to go. We've somehow done this. And we've said, like, to be in the service industry is less than, but if you have a liberal arts degree and you're educated, then you're, 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 you're somebody. And we even see it played out, this value played out in our culture. And Jesus, like, he just talks about the value of, of selfless service. I think we want the glory without the cross. I think we want greatness without humiliation. And what Jesus is teaching here is not some sort of abstract principle of life. He's living it before their very eyes. And he's going to live it. They're journeying to the cross as he's teaching them this. And when they're in Jerusalem on that final night, he's going to get down on his hands and knees. He's going to strap a towel around his waist. He's going to grab the grubby, filthy feet of these men who will betray him and abandon him. And he's going to wash their feet as the king of the universe. And he's going to carry the cross to a hill. He's going to bear the sins of these men who have betrayed him and your sins and my sins. He's going to absorb the wrath of God in the ultimate act of humility. He's teaching these things as he's journeying to the cross. And he uses an object lesson. Look at verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now this is a bizarre for us because we view children way different in our culture than they view children in the first century culture. In the ancient world, children had a very high mortality, right? I read this week that uh, over half of children didn't make it to the age of five. And so there was this sort of like not counting your eggs till they're hatched sort of thing that's going on until a kid could offer help, until a kid could be uh, of use or of service or utilitarian. They, they were seen as less than. And so in society where we think of, and we have our own caste system of rank and, and, and uh, we're preoccupied in our own way with greatness and status. In the first century world, the lowest rung on the ladder, the lowest status, the lowest, the person in society with the lowest status was a child. And so in our society, think about, I don't know, um, the homeless or a felon in prison or an undocumented immigrant. Whoever you think has the least status in our culture, that's who Jesus would put on his lap in front of these disciples. Zero status. I, uh, someone said to me this week in our sermon development team that Jesus was the first to truly see the value of children. What he did here was countercultural in the world by, by elevating the place of children. And so as this child sits on Jesus' lap, was not considered as a very significant, a low-status member of society. And so Jesus takes this zero-status individual, and he says the greatest in his kingdom is like this child. The greatest in his kingdom is who you and I would view as someone with zero status. The greatest isn't the disciples. It's not a priest. It's not an earthly king. It's not a prince. It's this child. And he says whoever receives... One such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I read this week that Jesus is showing them they should willingly take on lowly, often unnoticed tasks and care for those who have little status in the world. He says to receive a child with zero status is to receive Jesus. To receive Jesus is to receive the Father. This is the kingdom way. The kingdom way is not to look out, but to look up. 
In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And so in the second interaction between Jesus and his disciples, the disciples are seeking greatness. Jesus is calling them to selfless service. And finally, we get to verse 38. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. (laughs) I think it's interesting that it's not one of the twelve who is performing this exorcism. Uh, and it's interesting that he's doing it in the name of Jesus. This guy was a follower of Jesus. We don't know who this person was. And so in response to Jesus' teaching on selfless service, John comes back speaking for the whole of the disciples, and, he, and he's asking Jesus to cancel the competition. Uh, so he's, cancel the competition. Like, we, this guy... We don't know who this guy is, and that's your third fill-in, by the way, is to cancel the competition. We don't know who this guy is, uh, but, but, we don't, but he's not one of us, and so we think you should, you should stop him from, from doing it. We try to stop him, and he, and he wouldn't stop. And I think uh, about the, the, these guys had just got done trying to cast out a demon from a child, and they couldn't. And so they're feeling probably especially vulnerable because of that. And then on top of that, someone who's not even one of the 12 is having success in performing exorcisms, and they're just like, no, this, who is this guy? He's not, even, he's not earned the right to do this. He's not one of us. And so in essence, what these disciples are saying to Jesus is they're saying, yeah, we'll be humble. We'll, we'll try this whole kind of selfless service thing. We, we get that. We get that. But, but we want to be the only ones who are allowed to do that. And co- we, we want to we exclusively be the greatest at humility and service. So, so could you make us be the best at being humble? It's like, it's like, hey, I wrote a book on humility. You should read it. It's like, come on. Verse 39 Jesus says, uh, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be, able to soon, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so finally, to the disciples wanting the competition canceled, Jesus encourages them to support the saints. He wants them to support the saints. Notice again that he did not rebuke them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't wag a finger at them. He simply instructs. He reorients. He redirects his disciples to the kingdom way. I've been thinking about that as a parent this week. My kids are almost all raised, so I can't go back in time, unfortunately. But I wonder how many times I've responded to errant thinking in my children with rebuke and shame. Oh, to have the patience, like Jesus, to, to sit down in love and reorient and redirect my children to the kingdom way. I got grandkids, so I got a second chance. We got to remember the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Or like Jeremy said, the upward call of Christ is lower still. The desire to be great within us, it, it wells up. And it's welling up again here in the disciples' hearts when they see another person having success, especially in the aftermath of their failure. And they tried to stop him from following them. And Jesus says, don't. Don't don't stop him. In other words, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, in the church, he's saying fellow co-laborers in the gospel are partners. And not only should we not hinder the ministry of fellow co-laborers in the partnership of the gospel. Not, not only should we not hinder them, we should support them, give a cup of water to those who belong to the Messiah is the example he uses. This is a call 
for godly discernment because elsewhere in Scripture, we see all over the place warnings about false teachers and about false gospels. And so this call for us as the church, as we read this teaching, the temptation sometimes is just to run automatically to the teachings in the New Testament where we're called to to guard against false teachers and heretics among us, and we want to kind of just camp there. But that's not the context here. Here's a person who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus sees no offense in the ministry of this man, and he tells the disciples not to stop him, but to support him. And I think for us as Christians today, man, you want to see, you want to see a room full of egos, just go to a, a conference filled with lead pastors. It is so bad. And I could, I, I, in my own heart, man, it's like I know what it's like to be in a church when there's another church across town that's blowing up and everyone's going there and they got a better website and their pastor's better looking and yada, yada, yada. And they have a building. Oh, I envy buildings all the time. And, and there's all that going on. And it's like you have, this, you have to fight this jealousy, but it's like, no. They're preaching the gospel. We've got to pray for their success. We've got to pray for God to continue to refine their church and to bring glory to himself. And so what this is, is a call for us to discern what are essential and what are non-essential doctrines. One of the coolest things I've ever done in my life is serve as a chaplain for uh, various police departments. <laughs> and when I first began serving in Milwaukee, uh, there were seven of us on the chaplain team, all across denominational, denominational lines. Different views on baptism, different views on communion, different views on oh, salvation and the sovereignty of God, and lots of different views on some of these non-essential doctrines. And I, I, my temptation over the years was to sort of retreat back and kind of live in my own little church bubble. The church I worked at it was just that, all I ever, ever thought about. And I, I had a tendency to sort of not think about or think unfavorably about other churches just because. Uh, and then I became a chaplain, and I was the, as the head chaplain, so my job was to sort of like uh, wrangle the whole troop of chaplains. And so every month we'd sit down and have coffee or breakfast or lunch, and we'd just talk about the things we're seeing as chaplains. And you know how awesome it was for me to hear the love of, of Jesus that existed in the hearts of these men and these women who were serving the Lord? It was incredible. And the love they had for their people, the, the trust and the belief they had in the gospel. And I could recognize for, for many of the people on that chaplain board that we were absolutely in agreement in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We disagreed on some of the non-essential doctrines, but that, w- that was not a reason for us to divide over. And so what this is a call for us as a church is to, to, to discern what are the essential doctrines that we have to be unified on and what are the non-essential doctrines where we can have charity on, right? And, and one of the things that's really interesting about our church is we're, we're, those of us that are sitting in here, if we were all were to sit down, for those of you that have been in church for any length of time, and we were to start to talk about some of our views on some of the non-essential secondary doctrines, we would be all over the map. The reason I know that is because when I sit down with the elders, that's the case with the elders of our church. We're absolutely unified on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We have loving, robust dialogue about some of the other things. Never, no one's yelled yet, but it's been great. I think it's healthy. It's like iron sharpening iron. And so what we have to do is we have to discern. We have to rely on God's Word. We have to rely on His Holy Spirit. And we have to, we have to recognize there's a spectrum here, right? And, and there's, you fall off the, the edge on both sides. On one hand, you've got some people that say every teeny little doctrine is an essential doctrine. And they're going to divide over every single little teeny issue, secondary, third-level issues. And, and, and they're sinning in so doing. They're sinning. They're, 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 they're giving a stiff arm to brothers and sisters in Christ. They're creating disunity because they've chose to draw a line in the wrong spot. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those that are just open-handed, universalists. There's no essential doctrines. There's nothing that's guarded or fenced. Everything goes. 
sin, sin, we have to live right here. We have to live right here, holding to the core doctrines of the Christian faith, locking arms with others who are doing gospel ministry in Jesus' name. One of the most bizarre phenomenons that I have experienced in the church recently, the church universal, is uh, non-complete clauses in the church. Have you guys heard of this? We've, we've, we've had it. I worked at a church that had a non-complete clause. So if you became a pastor at the church, you had to sign a non-compete clause that said if you left the church, you could not work at another church or plant another church within 50 miles of that church. Yeah, yeah. See, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down, and I think the church, that is exactly the opposite of what we see in the New Testament. I've talked to so many of you about this over the years, but in the New Testament, we don't see a hoarding of talent. We don't see, what we see is we see a sending out we see, a, we see a developing of, of gifted disciples and a sending out. We, at the Acts Band event we had last month, different men from our church taught through the, the, the book of Acts, and we looked at uh, biblical manhood through the lens of the, gospel, or for the, of the book of Acts. And, and I was looking at, at the, in Acts 13, uh, the church at Antioch, and we were talking about this as men. And in that church, there was this amazing group of men that had planted this truly multi-ethnic missional church. There was Saul or Paul, and there was, Tar, or there was uh, uh, Barnabas, and there was Simeon, and there was Lucius. And there, was, and there was, I can't remember the other ones, they escaped me right now, but this amazing group of men, and, and a part of the church in Antioch was the Apostle Paul. It was the first church to really embrace him. And, and if he was in an American church, they would say, oh, we got this super gifted, godly guy, and we can have this attractional model, and we can hoard all the resources. Let's get the best music ministers here. Let's build the biggest building. Let's get the best talent here, and let's keep it all here and call it our own so we can be great. That is not what the church in Antioch did. They said, oh, there's a call of mission on this man's life. Let's lay hands on, let's pray and discern and fast, and let's send him out. Let's give him away. Let's send him into the mission field. And that's biblical. It's to send, it's to, it's to give away, not to hoard. So we're to support the saints. We're to be a sending church in the kingdom of God the way up is down. And so we see these three interactions between Jesus and his disciples. He talks about his humble sacrifice. They have no clue. They talk about seeking greatness. He says, you want to be great? Live selflessly in service. They talk about canceling competition. He says, no, no, no. Support the saints. Be a part of gospel mission outside the walls of your little thing. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And finally, I just want to encourage you just to go look lastly at the very final word in our text today. It's the word reward at the end of verse 41. If you want to underline that or circle that. We talked about that this week in my office as we gathered as a sermon development team. And we have an eternal reward in Christ. And kind of at the center of the, the cultural cage that is keeping these disciples stuck is this it's a selfish desire to be great. It's a selfish desire to not have any competition to their greatness. 
And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm going to lay down my life as an example of selflessness, and I'm going to call you to selfless service, and I'm going to call you to, to give away, to, to not hoard, to not keep, to support the saints. So it's this call to selflessness. And so this battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God is this battle between selfishness and selflessness. And we're seeing this battle out on the pages of, of Mark chapter 9, and I'm looking at this idea of this eternal reward that we have in Christ, and the ultimate antidote to selfishness is this eternal reward. If, if, if we have a, 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 an eternal reward that comes through Jesus, if there is no lack, if there is no need, imagine an endless reward of God, every need met, every desire fulfilled, fully satisfied to the depths of our being. It's the antidote to selfishness. There's no hunger for greatness because I'm experiencing absolute fulfillment in the greatness of God. There's no fear of competition for greatness because it's abundantly clear who is the greatest one of all. Satisfied fully in Christ. And so here we see that the cage doors have been opened. We no longer live by the selfish cultural principles of this world. The doors have been opened. This kingdom is not of this world. We, we live here. We're not there yet. There's this already not yet, but we are called to live under the authority of King Jesus. We're called to live by the values of his kingdom. We are citizens of an entirely different kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful that you give us your word to open up each week and God, to, to read and, and to have our hearts reoriented and redirected to you. God, I'm thankful. As we look at the pages of, of, of the scriptures, God, of how it's, God, it lays my heart bare. And I'm forced to deal with the selfishness in my own heart, the desire for greatness in my own heart, the, the fear of competition that exists in my own heart. And and yet you draw our eyes to you this morning, Jesus. And by your spirit, God, as you fill us, God, as our need to be loved is fully satisfied in you, as the desire for greatness pulls our eyes off of ourself and onto you, the truly great one, God, as you make yourself known to us this morning in this place, God, I ask, God, I ask that you would lovingly redirect, lovingly reorient, God, bring con conviction where there needs to be conviction and by the power of your spirit by the help of your spirit God would you enable us to see the kingdom of God and to live in this this paradox where the way up is down God may it be said of our church that we are humble servants that we lavishly give to those around us that we support your work within the confines of our four walls within our community and to the ends of the earth for your glory. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.